Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. President Garvey was, before president at Catholic University, was the dean of Boston College Law School uh, from 1999 to 2010. In 2008, he was the president of the Association, for American, uh, Association of American Law Schools. He has practiced law with the firm of Morrison and Forster in San Francisco, taught at Notre Dame, Michigan, and Kentucky. He's the author or co-author of numerous books, including Religion and the Constitution, which won the Alpha Sigma Nu Jesuit Book Award, and Sexuality and the U.S. Church, which won the Catholic Press Association Award. From 1981 to 1984, he was assistant to the Solicitor General of the United States. He's been married to Jean Walter Garvey for 41 years. They have five children, 19 grandchildren, and a rescue dog named Gus. <laughs> uh, the title of President Garvey's talk today is The Search for Truth in a Catholic University. Thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Patrick. I, you know, there is no, I've been uh, teaching at Catholic colleges and universities for um, 23 years now, but most of my life has, or half of my life has been at public universities, but I've been in the same line of work as Patrick has been for um, much of the time that the Cardinal Newman Society has been operating, and I have to say that there has not been any more important person in calling the Catholic higher education establishment to account for being Catholic than Patrick Riley and the Cardinal Newman Society. It's really been a wonderful uh, quarter century of work that he and the Newman Society have done, and they've branched out into asking Catholic colleges how they can be helpful to them. So I, I have really appreciated all the work that he has done, and it's a great thing to follow him. Um, let me just say a word or two about my own university for those of you who don't know it, and it always astounds me to hear that there are Catholics in the United States who don't know about the National University of the Catholic Church. We were established in 1887 by Pope Leo XIII at the request of the American Catholic bishops. Um, those of you who are my age or not much younger um, may have studied the Baltimore Catechism when you, were in, uh, when you were in grade school. That was how we learned about the Catholic faith when I was a boy. The Baltimore Catechism was a gift of, it's called the Baltimore Catechism because in the 19th century, before there was a United States Conference of Catholic Bishops or a National Catholic a Conference of Catholic Bishops, the bishops would meet in Baltimore, which was the first see in the United States. In the 19th century, there were three Baltimore councils, second right after the Civil War, when it was first proposed that there be created a national university of the Catholic Church. And then the third Baltimore council, which uh, created the Baltimore Catechism, established the parochial school system, and created the, the, the Catholic University of America, or requested that the Pope create the Catholic University of America. So we have a different constitutional structure from other Catholic colleges and universities. They have, uh, many of them, most of them are the gift of different orders of priests or uh, religious women. Um, 
there, there are uh, more than two dozen Jesuit um, uh, colleges and universities in the United States, but the Franciscans, the Dominicans, the Holy Cross priests, and, and the Ursuline nuns, and uh, many other orders of religious sisters uh, established Catholic universities. But uh, we are, um, we have a board of trustees, which at present is made up of equal numbers of bishops and lay people. So my board has about 50 people and on it are uh, nearly two dozen bishops, including all of the cardinal archbishops in the United States, the six in Boston, New York, Washington, Houston, uh, Chicago, now Newark. Uh, um, uh, anyway, it's a different sort of structure and this has over time kept us faithful to our mission, although as I'll advert to in a few minutes, uh, we have wandered um, and the 60s were a time when we wandered a bit as well. I do want to talk about building a great Catholic university and what I think is a fairly simple formula for doing it. Hard to execute, but simple in conception. But let me begin uh, where Patrick Riley began with his remarks, talking a little bit about the late 60s and what happened in Land O'Lakes, Wisconsin and what was happening at Catholic University at the same time. Patrick mentioned that in 1967, this group of, of college presidents met at a retreat house owned by Notre Dame in Land O'Lakes, Wisconsin, the, the um, IFCU, the, the Federation, the International Federation of Catholic Universities was meeting there. The president of IFCU at the time was the pres also the president of the University of Notre Dame, a 1945 graduate of the Catholic University of America. We educate many um, of America's great college uh, presidents and leaders. Anyway, Father Hesburgh met there with other Catholic um, presidents and they produced this statement about what Catholic universities ought to do. Um, it did say important things about the place of theology in the curriculum and the relationship between uh, theology and the other academic disciplines and the Christian spirit that ought to permeate universities, but they, they also all signed on to this statement which Patrick read to you and which I, I want to read to you again. To perform its teaching and research functions effectively, the Catholic University must have a true autonomy and academic freedom in the face of authority of whatever kind, lay or clerical, external to the academic community itself. So they were saying, actually the Middle States Commission on Higher Education was saying at exactly the same time to my university, get the bishops out of the university, they have no, they have no place in it and the church shouldn't be telling the university what it ought to be doing. To say, to say this, the statement continued is simply to assert that institutional autonomy and academic freedom are essential conditions of life and growth and indeed of survival for Catholic universities as for all universities. So this statement was signed by a number of college presidents in addition to Father Hesburgh, the presidents of, Notre Dame, of uh, Fordham and Boston College and um, uh, Georgetown St. Louis University and the Catholic University of Puerto Rico. Um, my predecessor as Catholic University's President uh, William MacDonald was um, not in attendance. We were represented at uh, Land O'Lakes by the Reverend Raymond Fowerbaugh, who was the assistant to Bishop MacDonald. MacDonald was busy with an affair that eventually became entangled with the Land O'Lakes statement itself. Our board of trustees, again, mostly bishops at the 
time voted in the spring of 1967 not to grant tenure to Father Charles Curran, who was teaching in, in the School of Theology and Religious Studies at the time. Um, and the theology faculty then went on strike, as did the entire student body. Uh, and it, was, it caused such a flap, it um, essentially shut down the university until, the, until our chancellor, um, or the chancellor of the university is the Archbishop of Washington, at that time it was Cardinal Boyle had to persuade the board to reverse its action, and um, my predecessor, Bishop McDonald, uh, went off in disgrace to become the Auxiliary Bishop of San Francisco. This is how things uh, stood at our university for some time. As Patrick mentioned, my predecessor, uh, Bishop, uh, Father O'Connell, now Bishop O'Connell of Trenton, had a great uh, deal of um, influence on turning us in a different direction, and that's the direction that we've been trying to go during, during my time there as well. Anyway, the, the statement, though, um, governed uh, the discussion about the relationship between academic freedom and the authority of the Catholic magisterium at Catholic universities. And today, uh, and that's what I want to talk about, but today when we talk about uh, uh, academic freedom and Catholic universities, we tend to focus on things like uh, who the commencement speaker is, or whether teachers in the theological disciplines have a mandate from, from the local bishop. Um, important things, and things that are stipulated in both the Code of Canon Law and in the Apostolic Constitution Ex Corde Ecclesiae, which St. John Paul wrote in 1990. Um, but uh, there is, I think, an even more essential point about creating a Catholic university, and it's what I want to talk about. In our discussions about this since Land O'Lakes, we tend to, um, to hear two different voices. One, uh, people who emphasize the importance of absolute autonomy for a Catholic university to be truly a university. On the other side, there are people who insist that the church, the, 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 the institutions must be faithful to Catholic teaching and therefore accountable to uh, church authority if they're to be Catholic. The trouble is that neither side really tells us what a Catholic university is and how to build one. That's what I want to talk about. I think the formula for building a great university, like a great baseball team, is a fairly simple one. It's, uh, if, if you want to build a great baseball team, you hire great players. In a fundamental sense, the faculty are the university. Students pay to learn what the faculty profess. And if the faculty are great scholars and teachers, the university will be a great university. The formula for building a great Catholic university is also fairly simple, and it was laid out in 1990 in the Apostolic Constitution Ex Corde Ecclesiae. John Paul himself was a university professor, so he knew whereof he spoke. Ex Corde runs about 50 pages in the English translation, and all of it is worth reading, but the punchline of the document is four short lines near the end of it. In part two, a section on general norms, John Paul says that in order for a university to be Catholic, a majority of its faculty must be Catholic. What I most admire about this prescription is its modesty. St. John Paul didn't say that he and the other bishops should superintend the Catholic character of Catholic universities. On the contrary, he began with the observation uh, um, about the university community by conceding that 
He says, the responsibility for maintaining and strengthening the Catholic identity of the university rests primarily with the university itself. Ex corte says to a university faculty and to its administrators, in effect, we don't know how to run a Catholic university. We're bishops. That's your job. The only thing we insist on is that you choose Catholics to do it. This is, as I say, a fairly simple plan, but it's met with resistance in the academy. <clears throat> I want to discuss with you one line of argument against it, which, which I find both powerful and well-considered, but wrong. Here's how it goes. The same, the, uh, the same year that Father Hesburgh and the guys were meeting in Land O'Lakes, Wisconsin, the Supreme Court decided a case about academic freedom. It was called Kaishian against the Board of Regents. The petitioner was a man named Harry Kaishian, who was an adjunct English professor at the University of Buffalo. He was hired in the 60s. The University of Buffalo was once uh, a private school, but in 1962 it merged into the SUNY system, the State University of New York system. And that made Harry a state employee subject to something called the Feinberg Law, which required him to sign a certificate, this is the 60s, um, saying that he wasn't a communist. I'm not sure whether he was or not, there was some evidence that he was, but anyway, Harry was scrupulous about signing the certificate, so his contract was not renewed. Uh, he, like uh, Father Curran, uh, had a tantrum, sued the Board of Regents, and won in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said that the Feinberg Law and several other New York sedition laws which it enforced were inconsistent with the academic freedom that's guaranteed by the Constitution. And this is how Justice Brennan put it in his opinion for the Supreme Court. I want you to listen carefully to this. The First Amendment, Brennan said, does not tolerate laws that cast a pall of orthodoxy over the classroom. The classroom is peculiarly the marketplace of ideas. The nation's future depends upon leaders trained through wide exposure to that robust exchange of ideas, which discovers truth out of a multitude of tongues, rather than through any kind of authoritative selection. So I want you to be careful in parsing this. It's not a postmodern argument. The court didn't say that all ideas deserve equal protection because one is as good as another, that there's no such thing as truth. On the contrary, it argued for a free market of ideas on instrumental grounds. If we want to discover truth, Brennan says, we should prefer a multitude of tongues to orthodoxy and authoritative selection. So we're, we're all trying to get to the same place, but Brennan's recommendation for how to get there is have a multitude of tongues, no authoritative selection, and so on. There is an even more famous version of this argument, which those of you who took philosophy classes in college will be familiar with. It was made by John Stuart Mill, whose famous piece on liberty is the best known of his political writings. It was, about, it was written about 100 years before the Justice Brennan's opinion in Cahitian. Chapter two of On Liberty is an extended defense of the liberty of thought and discussion, which morphs into academic freedom in the contemporary world. Justice Brennan assumed that free trade in ideas was the surest path to truth. John Stuart Mill offers three reasons why this might be so. First of all, he says, the opinions that we suppress may turn out to be true. This 
certainly right. Mill says, all silencing of discussion is an assumption of infallibility. Think about Galileo and Urban VIII. Turns out the earth really does revolve around the sun. Second, Mill says, it may be the case that conflicting doctrines, instead of one being true and the other false, share the truth between them. Chemists in the 19th century debated whether inanimate catalysts or living cells caused fermentation. Turns out they were both right. Um, it's caused by enzymes, which are inanimate bodies, but they're pressed out of living cells. Third, suppose, Mill says, that the received opinion is entirely true. Unless we're forced to consider objections to it, Mill says, our reception of it will in time become a mindless and reflexive attachment. Truth thus held, he said, is but one superstition the more, accidentally clinging to words which enunciated truth. John Tillotson, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the time of William and Mary, said that the phrase hocus pocus was actually a, corrup a corruption of hocustinum corpus meum, the words of consecration, for uh, a sort of imitation of transubstantiation. Anyway, you can probably see where all of this leads in the discussion about ex corde ecclesiae and building a great Catholic university. Some people draw from Mill and Brennan and their disciples the conclusion that a great Catholic university is a contradiction in terms. If we hire a majority of Catholics instead of a multitude of tongues, we'll have a harder time discovering truth than schools that reject orthodoxy and authoritative selection. Without dissent and disagreement, without the intellectual give and take that characterize a free market of ideas, we're bound to lose our way and have no one to call us back. So I said this is the argument that I, I think is really powerful and well considered, but wrong. And I want to say something about that now. That's how the argument goes. The funny thing is, it's easy to find examples of great universities that contradict Mill's thesis and Brennan's thesis. Think about the University of Chicago. The University of Chicago's School of Economics developed around Milton Friedman and George Stigler in the 1950s. The school, as you probably know, embraced a neoclassical approach to economics that was based on rational expectations. The Chicago School spun off a lot of parallel movements like law and economics, influential in my field, or uh, public choice theory. The university's website, uh, it's worth going to look at it, lists 28 Nobel Prize winners who spent time in their careers at Chicago as faculty or students or researchers. They include Gary Becker and Ronald Coase, Robert Fama, Robert Fogel, Milton Friedman, Lars Peter Hansen, Robert Lucas, Roger Meyerson, Theodore Schultz, Joe Stigler, and there were fa really famous people who didn't get Nobel Prizes, like, like uh, Frank Knight and, um, in our time, Richard Posner. Anyway, in building this great, really great school, Chicago preferred people who shared its peculiar orientation to Keynesian economics. They wanted faculty who believed in markets, and who worried more about governmental regulation than they did about private monopolies. Chicago was the very embodiment of free market thinking, but 
It didn't seek a multitude of tongues for its faculty. In fact, Paul Douglas, who was on the faculty for a time before running for, uh, running for office and becoming the senator from Illinois, um, complained in his autobiography that Frank Knight, who was the guiding spirit of the Chicago School in his time, that Frank Knight was openly hostile to me and his disciples seemed to be everywhere. That's one example. I could give more. I don't, uh, I don't have time this morning, but think about the Bauhaus School, the most influential uh, force in architecture in the last hundred years, or the Cambridge School of Political Thought, or the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory, or the Yale School of Literary Criticism. What they all have in common is a dedication to a common project, usually a departure from some academic orthodoxy, and a sense that the group is working on its own to build up something new and unheard of before. They all laid the foundations of great intellectual movements. And yet, they were built on principles that seem inconsistent with Mill's theory about academic freedom. In building their faculties, they didn't seek out a multitude of tongues. How can this be? Well, this may be one of those problems that, as the French say, uh, is, uh, is true in practice, but not in theory. <laughs> but actually, I think there's a theory that supports it as well. Uh, I think that building a great university, Catholic or not, is a complicated thing. And there is some truth in Mill's thesis, but there's more to the project than that. I, uh, uh, let me illustrate this with a brief account of one of my intellectual heroes. Uh, this is a man named Michael Polanyi. Michael Polanyi was the fifth child born into a, a family of secular Jews in Hungary in 1891. He got a medical degree and then, and then he got a PhD in chemistry. Um, his son won the Nobel Prize for chemistry in 1986. In 1919, Michael Polanyi converted to Christianity. And in the 20s, when he taught at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute in Berlin, uh, the Nazis um, uh, eventually came to power and, and Polanyi moved to the United Kingdom he, where he taught at the University of Manchester until he died. Um, he was a pretty famous scientist, but he is better known for his writings about epistemology and about social science, both of which I like a lot. Uh, right about the time, well, five years before Orlando Lakes, uh, Professor Polanyi gave a lecture at Roosevelt University in the United States um, that was entitled The Republic of Science. And it was about building up intellectual communities, the, the subject that we're interested in. He was talking about this because during and after World War II, uh, there were efforts in England, as, uh, as there are now, to direct the, the progress of science into channels that would better serve the public welfare. Polanyi thought this was a bad idea, and um, he, he knew whereof he spoke. He pointed to, um, to Soviet schemes for having their Academy of Science guide research, the better to support the Soviet five-year plan, whatever it might be. Uh, Polanyi said that he appreciated the sentiments that motivated the British and the and the Soviet plans. It's a good thing to advance the public welfare at universities, but he found their aim misguided. He said, science is a particular kind of joint task that requires the spontaneous coordination of independent initiatives, not central control. 
the spontaneous coordination of independent initiatives. Let me explain what that means. Imagine he says that we have a very large jigsaw puzzle and we're trying to put the pieces together in the shortest possible time. One way to speed things up is to hire more helpers to work on the jigsaw puzzle. So imagine that we're all sitting around a table working on this. Notice how, though, that this is a different kind of problem from hiring a bunch of people to shell peas. If you're, if you're shelling peas, each worker can tend to her own knitting. The more workers you hire, the faster you'll shell the peas and the, the increase will be arithmetic and each person can go about her business. The total number of peas shelled won't vary if the workers are isolated from one another. But with the jigsaw puzzle, the workers have to work inside of one another. I have to see what you're doing on your part because advances in your part of the puzzle will make new opportunities available for me to put my pieces in. This is how science progresses, he says. This is what we mean by saying that the work is coordinated. But it's also, he says, independent. If we try to organize the helpers, the, the people working around the jigsaw puzzle, if we try to organize them under one central authority, we lose the benefit of their independent initiatives and we reduce their joint effectiveness to that of a single person directing them from the top. This was the argument about the Soviets got this wrong, their biology went off the rails for a generation, the Brits are about to make the same mistake and we shouldn't do that, he said. Now, I want you to notice three things about Polanyi's argument. It's a really powerful argument for academic freedom and one that I subscribe to. The drafters of the Land O'Lake Statement were on to something in saying that faculty need independence from central guiding authority in doing their work. But, and here are the three things I want you to notice. First, it's implicit in the jigsaw puzzle analogy that there is a correct solution. This is not a postmodern argument. The pieces don't fit together any which way. Uh, Polanyi was somebody who did not subscribe to epistemological or moral relativism. He believed that there were right and wrong answers, good and bad answers, true and false answers. He believed the truth was real. So how do we know how we found it? Who's to say? This is the second interesting thing. If truth is real, there are right and wrong opinions. There is, as Polanyi put it, an orthodoxy of science. Remember Brennan saying, uh, we don't want, or we don't want a pall of orthodoxy over the classroom. Polanyi said, no, 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 there is, if, if there's truth, there is, there are right and wrong answers. There is an orthodoxy of science. And, and if there is an orthodoxy, there is an authority that's capable of judging whether we have it or not. It can't just be any single person. It's in his analogy, it's to be found in the scientific community, which is responsible for maintaining professional standards. So uh, this is a complicated thing because each scientist, and you know there are molecular biologists and other kinds of biologists and physicists and chemists and so on, uh, and each of these scientists is competent to judge only in his or her small corner of studies. But though this is true, um, they'll all have some sense about standards in immediately adjacent areas. You know, I myself used to teach constitutional law and there are certain kinds of law that, that I know some things about, some aspects of international public law, some aspects of state law, some 
some uh, kinds of statutory law. I don't know beans about patent and copyright law. It's a little bit farther out from my, from my field of study. Um, but if you put all of these scientists together, if we consider the larger community of scientists, we will find, uh, he says, a network of overlapping competencies that together generate uniform standards of scientific merit. Think again about the helpers working on the jigsaw puzzle. He said, if these people have a different idea of what they are about, if one person working on the puzzle, for example, thinks that the pieces ought to be stacked on top of one another rather than interlocked, it's not going to work. You won't get the puzzle put together. You need somebody uh, to say, no, this is the right way to do this. You need, there has to be an orthodoxy of science. The community of scholars must share the same idea of what is the problem that they're working on and what counts as a good solution. And this is the third point. For the community of scholars to be authoritative, there have to be standards for admission to the community of scholars. In Polanyi's view, he says the authority of science is essentially traditional. It's like it's transmitted from one generation to another in the way that artistic and moral and legal traditions are transmitted from one generation to another. Scientists learn their trade by apprenticing with people who have already mastered the tradition. To be accepted into the trade, they must submit to, he says, a vast range of value judgments exercised over all the domains of science. So in this world, universities play a uniquely important role in the Republic of Science. He says the justification for the pursuit of scientific research in universities lies in the fact that the universities provide an intimate communion for the formation of scientific opinion free from corrupting intrusions and distractions. You can see where I'm going with this. Excordia Ecclesiae takes a similar approach to building a great Catholic university. The encyclical does not undertake to regulate Soviet style, the teaching of theology or physics or literature. It does not prefer or condemn particular theories or schools of thought. It doesn't say that the undergraduate curriculum must include 12 hours each of philosophy and theology. Here is what it says. The responsibility for maintaining and strengthening the Catholic identity of the university rests primarily with the university itself. This responsibility calls for the recruitment of personnel, especially teachers and administrators, who are both willing and able to promote that identity. The central thing St. John Paul insists on is that the people who build the university community be apprenticed in the Catholic tradition as Polanyi's scientists were formed in the scientific tradition and committed to the common project of building the Catholic intellectual life. Building a Catholic faculty is not a matter of tribalism any more than building a Republic of Science is a matter of tribalism. It's a recognition that in order to create a distinctively Catholic intellectual culture, we need to build an intellectual community that's governed by a Catholic worldview. We have a shared commitment to Catholic ideas about creation 
and providence, about human beings being made in the image of God. And this will spur creativity in the development of a culture that expresses that idea. Let me close the circle by returning to the Land O'Lake statement. There's a distinction between embracing the Catholic tradition as a constitutional principle, I mean, who you hire and what they're like, on the one hand, and regulating particular activities in research and teaching. Polanyi wrestled with this idea too. There's an internal tension in science between the need to adhere to orthodox professional standards and the demand for originality in research. He says, this is Polanyi, the professional standards of science must impose a framework of discipline and at the same time encourage rebellion against it. Kepler's theory about elliptical orbits grew out of an effort on his part to defend Copernicus's ideas about uniform motion. Newton relied on Copernicus and Kepler to find answers that were unthinkable to them. The defense of originality, unlike what Brennan says or what Mill says, it doesn't demand the rejection of orthodoxy. On the contrary, originality is impossible without a sense of orthodoxy. You can't tell what's a departure from what you think, from what the norm is, from what the, the received wisdom is, unless you have an orthodox tradition firmly in place. And in the same way, building a Catholic intellectual tradition can't be done without a predominant Catholic intellectual contribution. This is why Ex Corde Ecclesiae itself can include a stout defense of academic freedom alongside its insistence on hiring a predominantly Catholic faculty. Here's what it says. The church, it says, recognizes the academic freedom of scholars in each discipline in accordance with its own principles and proper methods. This isn't just lip service to an idea that the secular academy prizes. The church really means it. The process that it favors to, uh, for keeping the faith isn't compulsion and censorship, but building up the body of Christ. At the Catholic University of America, we're building a community of scholars who share a vision of reality that's illuminated by the person of Jesus Christ. If our faculty approach every discipline, history, biology, literature, engineering, business, as Catholics, we can build an intellectual culture guided by a distinctive vision of reality. We can't predict exactly what sort of culture this is gonna produce. As Michael Polanyi observed, the result of our coordinated pursuit of truth is not something that's premeditated, but history suggests that it'll be something distinctive and wonderful. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.